At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Justin E.H. Smith about his new book, Nature, Human Nature, and Human Difference, Race in Early Modern Philosophy. This came out in 2015 with Princeton University Press. Now, this is a really fascinating account of the transformations, the genealogy, the historical ontology of notions of race and related notions in the work of European thinkers between the end of the 17th century and kind of the beginning of the 18th century. So it's a story that is for readers who are particularly interested in early modernity, in the history of philosophy, but also for readers who are interested in notions of race um, and related notions and the ways that um, in the argument that Justin proposes for us, they uh, the, the kind of notions that are now associated with modern conceptions of race came to have the form that they do now. It's really, really interesting, and there are three related argumentative aims of the book that I'm going to lay out for you right now at the beginning so that you have that as a kind of foundation as you move through the interview. Now, I'm going to give you the words of the book here, um, so listen up. All right, first related argumentative aim. Metaphysical dualism served as an important bulwark against the rise of essentialist thinking about human racial diversity. So long as the human soul was thought to be something fundamentally independent of the body, physical differences between human beings could not be taken as markers of essential difference. So here we have one of the arguments being related to dualism and ideas of um, the kind of dualism of the soul and the body. So um, that's one really, really interesting thread of the book. Number two, it was the naturalization of the human being. The discovery of the possibility of the study of human beings as natural entities that made dualism a moribund research program by the end of the 18th century and essentialist racial thinking possible. So again, we have notions of nature and naturalism and um, the natural being bound up with the development of racial ideas in the arguments of the book. Number three, while a commitment to the existence of a body-independent rational soul was a bulwark against the rise of modern racism. The interactions between this commitment and the rising naturalism of the modern period helped to generate the modern, racially charged dichotomy between two basic varieties of people, the people of reason and the people of nature. 
So as you can see, just from um, the super quick rehashing of those three major argumentative aims, which are um, also related, as you can see, there are some really interesting ways in which Justin is able to weave together the history of racial thinking with some really important larger themes that are uh, germane to the history of philosophy, the history of science, um, and, and intellectual history in this period. So with that, I will leave you to the interview. Um, this is something that is going to sound a little bit different from normal insofar as we um, had to begin on one day and end on another. Um, and this was entirely a function of the internet connection or the lack of um, really adequate internet connectivity um, between our two continents. So um, I hope you enjoy. Uh, I hope you have a chance to get your hands on the book and read um, the really rich texture and the, the beautiful argumentation um, that you'll find there. And thank you as ever for listening and for your support of the channel. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Justin E.H. Smith about his new book, Nature, Human Nature, and Human Difference. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Justin, and thanks for dealing with a pretty substantial time difference, writing an awesome book, and making time today to talk with me about it. I'm looking forward. Yes, thanks for having me. So let's start um, with a kind of general question. How did you come to the field? What brought you to the history and philosophy of science specifically? Well, I suppose I had my first training uh, as an undergrad and then as gra in graduate school as an analytic philosopher in uh, kind of the most traditional analytic programs you could imagine. Uh, and right away, I knew uh, I'd made a huge mistake and that this was not for me. Uh, and uh, I... I, I thought the best way to work with uh, the uh, task life had thrown my way, namely getting through grad school, was to go back and do the history of philosophy and to concentrate in particular on the 17th century and more particularly on the philosophy of Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. And this was uh, to some extent a good strategy, but even within uh, the subdiscipline of history of philosophy done in an analytic way, one doesn't really have uh, the freedom to look at the kind of rich uh, world of interests and experiences uh, and actual challenges faced by the historical figures we're studying as philosophers. So, that was a partial solution, but not a complete solution. So after I finished grad school, I stayed on in philosophy. I did my job the best I could, uh, but I was increasingly attracted to what people were doing in uh, that strange hybrid quasi-discipline known as HPS. Uh, not principally because I had a particular interest in science as a domain of uh, cultural activity, though I think now I do, but more simply because it was a way of engaging with the problems with which Leibniz himself, for example, engaged uh, 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 without having to uh, produce proof every uh, 
every page or uh, every few minutes, if one is lecturing, uh, that there's philosophical payoff to it. One can freely explore the intellectual universe of the 17th century under the banner of history and philosophy of science in a way that one is not free to do as an orthodox historian of philosophy. Right. And we'll talk about Leibniz, I'm sure, um, by the end of our conversation today. Sure. The book is a book on race in early modern philosophy. That's the subtitle. What brought you to this particular set of problems and why write a book length object about this? So how did this come into being for you? Well, I think there are two uh, 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 kind of uh, intersecting elements in the background to the book. And they seem far apart, but in the way I think about it, uh, they they come together very cleanly. Uh, one of the elements is that it emerges directly out of my earlier scholarly work on uh, the uh, intersection between the history uh, and philosophy of uh, the life sciences in the early modern period. That is the intersection between philosophy and the life sciences in the early modern period, I should have said. One of the aspects of that topic that I'd been working on for some time was the history of classification in the early modern period, the way in which practices of categorizing particularly plant and animal species Uh, were transformed uh, from the 16th to the 18th centuries, the ways in which the colonial experience, uh, for example, uh, uh, necessarily uh, uh, brought about a a situation in which the older classical taxonomical works of Aristotle and Theophrastus inherited from antiquity would clearly no longer suffice. And so people were forced to come up with new methods of classifying natural diversity from the period of roughly Cesalino in the Renaissance to Linnaeus in the early 18th century. And this, in turn, uh, uh, was continued kind of most obviously by Linnaeus in the system of nature of the early 18th century, was extended uh, to a Uh, kind of subspecies level in which not just natural diversity in general uh, 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 was of interest, but also finding the natural subdivisions within the human species, finding the, the, the natural outlines of human diversity. And this in turn, now this brings me to the second uh, element that feeds into uh, the project. Uh, If you're talking about uh, the precise ways in which uh, a a certain species of fish differs from another species within the same same genus, uh, there aren't many uh, uh, very obvious political ramifications of this. But when the classificatory project of the early modern period uh, extends or perhaps overreaches into 
human reality, there are obvious political ramifications. And in the case of the history of the concept of race, what we see is this incredible point of contact between uh, 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 social and political uh, uh, thinking of the period and uh, the history of natural philosophy. So just to finish this thought, uh, we're all very familiar now with the ways in which uh, uh, racist institutions, most notably uh, the institution of transatlantic slavery, influenced uh, uh, social and political philosophy in the modern period. What I wanted to do was to try to figure out the way in which um, um, there was a mutual influence or a bi-directional influence of these same racist institutions on the one hand and the history of what we could call natural philosophy on the other. Um, so those are the two primary intellectual motivations. And I suppose I also have uh, 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 more directly personal motivations that I could get to perhaps later in the interview. So the book itself is um, written in a way that appeals to readers, and I'll just say this from my own experience, readers from a wide variety of disciplines and fields and, and forms of interest. And it's talking about the kind of topic that is currently engaged by um, writers and thinkers and scholars also in a range of different fields, which includes history of science and um, includes philosophy of science and also includes other kinds of um, social sciences and, and sort of mm. feminist philosophy, etc. So for you as a historian and philosopher of science, how do you position yourself within this much broader field, right, of potential discourse to engage? And basically, who, who are you, right, as a historian sure. of philosophy of science? Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think uh, 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 some criticism of the book uh, that's not unreasonable, it, it's, a, it's an important perspective, has suggested that I so to speak, reproduce uh, the pretension of universality uh, that was the great blind spot of the Enlightenment thinkers who are subjected to criticism in the book. In other words, that uh, 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 there was a terrible hypocrisy in the uh, 18th century uh, uh, European uh, writing on uh, race and enlightenment that I engage in the final chapter of the book, chapter nine, where uh, uh, thinkers like Kant or Diderot uh, 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 presumed to be describing human diversity from a neutral perspective uh, uh, or speaking for the universal, as, as, as is sometimes said, when in fact, with a bit of hindsight, it's very clear that they, um, they were uh, 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 guilty of all sorts of confirmation biases and they were um, uh, selectively drawing on uh, purported empirical evidence as a way of establishing uh, a priori commitments uh, that they held on non-scientific grounds, for example, that uh, that Europeans are, uh, so to speak, the default uh, 
version of the human species and every uh, every non-European so-called race is a deviation from this standard. So we can look at that and see that they clearly were not speaking from the universal. They were speaking from what, it, what was in fact a very, uh, a very parochial and limited perspective. And one doesn't want to repeat that uh, in writing about them. Uh, and yet I suppose uh, 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 I did attempt to uh, 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 move fairly quickly past the question of who I am and how I can claim to know what I know uh, uh, in writing this book, uh, which is uh, 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 in turn something that I think in writing about race, uh, many of our contemporaries feel one ought not do, right? One ought always to say who they are and um, what their lived experience is and how they can claim to know what they know. Do I regret doing it in this way? Um, well, yes and no. I, I, I would like to be in more lively and, and, and fruitful conversation with um, with uh, 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 uh critics about uh, about about the limits of undertaking this kind of historical project on the other hand I'm fairly certain that um, that I do know a few things uh, none of our contemporaries know and that I was able to um, present these things and to interpret them in a coherent narrative in this book and in that sense I suppose I I, 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 I want to be in dialogue with as many people as possible but I I, 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 I'm not quite ready to give up on uh, the um, uh, 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 pretenses of, of traditional scholarship where you read stuff, you discover what people had to say, and then you relate it. Um, so it's an interesting issue, um, and I'm still thinking about it uh, uh, many months after I saw the first reviews, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. So what I'll do, well, thank you very much, Justin. What I'll do is I'll just say a little bit right now to set the stage um, for listeners, and then we'll kind of dive in a little bit further. So the book asks, among other things, how race came to mean nature. It looks at, in the words of the book, how and why European authors came to have the beliefs that they had concerning race in the period around the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century. It argues, and again, I'm going to use the words of the book here, that in order to understand the forces that shaped thinking about racial difference in early modern philosophy, we must look to the philosopher's own interest in scientific classification and physical anthropology with an eye to the way these projects were influenced by early modern globalization and by associated projects of global commerce, of collection, and systematization of the order of nature. And there are a series of arguments that um, that I'll uh, leave off for now, but that we'll get to in a moment. So one of the really interesting things about the methodology um, that you're using here in the book, um, and, and one of the things that I find really, really stimulating to think about is your engagement of the um, concept of and the methodology of historical ontology. This mm. is a book that's a historical ontology, right, in the sense and the spirit of Ian Hacking. So can you maybe um, kind of dive in by talking about that for you? What's important? Well, first of all, what does that methodology practically mean for you um, in terms of your engagement with your sources? And um, can you talk about that decision and that approach? 
Sure, sure. Uh, historical ontology is a phrase that uh, it was, if not coined, at least um, 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 popularized by uh, Ian Hacking, um, who is kind of a renegade analytic philosopher of science who uh, 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 went renegade insofar as he learned some valuable lessons from Michel Foucault. Um, and his uh, interest in particular has been um, to uh, look at the ways in which uh, 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 a number of entities that we don't want to treat as uh, chopped liver, so to speak, uh, uh, nonetheless, that is that we don't want to neglect or of which we don't want to deny their existence, nonetheless seem to uh, have historical lives, seem to come and go depending on um, what the historical circumstances are. So the idea of historical ontology then is that a given mental illness or sexual orientation, for example, could very well exist at some point, even if that doesn't mean that it exists in the same way that helium or uh, oxygen exist. That is in the full, robust sense of they're there whether you know it or not, right? At least so we suppose. Um, 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 so Hacking did some wonderful case studies, for example, of fugue syndrome, which was an illness that everyone had, uh, or not everyone, but many people had up till about the end of World War One, when all of a sudden it just dropped off the map. Um, now, was this an actual thing? Well, sort of. So this is in turn part of Hacking's argument that um, that you can't use the idea of social construction as, as sort of deconstruction, right? You can't um, uh, expose an entity or a phenomenon or a category as socially constructed and for that reason expect it to evaporate, right, uh, once you've done this exposing. And this is certainly the case um, with the concept of race, where uh, we all know that there overwhelming scientific consensus since the mid-20th century uh, that race is a biologically uninteresting concept. At least, I mean, how should I, yes, population genetics is real. Uh, you, can, you can know things about people by knowing uh, their, uh, 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 their genetic background, but not in a way that interestingly or informatively maps onto traditional folk race concepts. So we know it's biologically uninteresting, and yet it remains salient for us, and it remains difficult for even those of us who know the science and who know the history of the science uh, to look at in a way that doesn't uh, kind of suggest its own naturalness, right? Um, and so... Uh, so, so, so historical ontology then is, uh, is a, is an approach that allows you to, uh, uh, simultaneously, uh, uh, recognize that the, that the, the object of your interest is not ontologically robust 
in the way that helium or oxygen is. Um, and yet, nonetheless, um, um, isn't a figment of our imagination or a sort of delirium or hallucination and in turn permits you to treat it with um, kind of the, uh, the subtlety it requires, right? Mm-hmm. So there are um, a couple of chapters in the book early on that we won't have a chance to talk substantively about, although I'd love to talk just, you know, for an hour about each one of them. But they touch on some of the consequences and um, kinds of art, um, historical art and philosophical art that extend from this approach of historical ontology. So the first chapter I'll just mention um, does take us very carefully and in a really interesting way into the importance of social constructionism, as you've just kind of alluded to, but also the Mm -hmm. importance of um, a kind of cognitivist approach, Mm -hmm. um, specifically in the work of people like Scott Atran um, that some Mm -hmm. of us might be familiar with, um, and the ways that those have been deployed um, to understand conceptions of race. And so chapter one, Curious Kinks, does this Mm -hmm. really interesting way. And the second chapter, which I'd also love to talk with you about for like an hour um, hmm. takes on this idea of um, historical ontology of race and addresses some of the important methodological problems and consequences that come from this. I mean, specifically, if race is something that's constantly changing throughout history, if it doesn't exist, um, as you put it here, in any trans-historical sense, then as a historian, like when you're looking for relevant documents mm-hmm. to study these changes how do you know what to look for, right? If you're not looking for a term and you're not looking for a specific, like how do you know where to even look to find this changing thing? So chapter two is a particularly fascinating, um, really a consideration, a careful consideration of this problem that I recommend to anybody listening who is a historian actually, and is is working on anything um, because it's a really Mm. interesting methodological contribution to a problem that I think a lot of us have, regardless of what um, field that we work in. Oh, go ahead. No, please go on. I was going to take the chapter. So if you want to talk about this, go for it. No, I was just going to say, I I have the sense myself that I'm not so much um, making a methodological, methodological contribution as I am uh, identifying and acknowledging a methodological quandary that I myself faced. Um, um, given that uh, uh, people in the early period I describe uh, uh, do not have the term and arguably, nor arguably the concept of race, how do we know what to look for when we're trying to identify kind of the early roots of the development of the concept? Um, one does one's best, uh, but, uh, but one could very well be looking in the wrong place. And I, I think just as a reader and a historian that it's it's in itself a methodological contribution just to create a space to work through the implications of this. So I think it's a contribution. So I want to thank you for that. Sure. This takes us into the third chapter. Chapter three looks at the early development of thinking um, in the words of the book about human diversity and human origins in the context of the Renaissance. Now you tell us in the book that later reflections in European philosophy actually echo debates that played out a century earlier within the Iberian Iberio-American world. Um, So this is really interesting. And this chapter focuses in particular on 16th century engagements with the Americas and questions raised about the origins and nature of biological kinds in the new world, especially kinds of peoples. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is super interesting in all kinds of ways, but I'm going to ask you um, maybe to start by talking about one of the points you're bringing up here. Um, you make the point here that in the early modern period, most thinkers, or at least most of the thinkers we might be familiar with, held a view of all humans as fundamentally the same insofar as they all descended from Adam and thus had savable souls. Okay, so Adam is going to follow us into the next chapter, too. So let's get straight um, here um, why this is important. Can can you talk about the importance of this for you in terms of um, what you take to be the most important contributions that this chapter is making? Sure. Well, I mean, in some sense, uh, 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 early... uh, reflection on human diversity that was kind of forced into public discussion by the encounter with the Americas, so beginning at the end of the 15th century, um, was based on an anthropological model inherited from, uh, ultimately from Aristotle, but Christianized Aristotle, uh, that supposed that uh, uh, there could not be a hierarchical uh, a schematization of differences within the human species. There could not be uh, uh, creatures that are uh, poor excuses for a human or pretty human, uh, uh, but not quite there yet. Everything is either fully human or not. Uh, inter hominem et non hominem tertium non datur is the, the common phrase. There's nothing, there's no third term between uh, human and non-human. It's like you um, say that all the time. I'm constantly using that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so, and so then, um, you know, part of the reason for this, uh, understood in Christian terms is, well, because Adam was created in the image of God. Um, and if we are all descended from Adam, then we're all the image of God. And this is, uh, true independently of any, uh, peculiar and unfortunate deviations that might have occurred as we wandered throughout the world and um, forgot about uh, the revealed truth of the sacred scripture, got lazy, got poor habits, and became somewhat animalized. That doesn't matter because we're an image of God, not to the extent that we have a certain skin color or certain facial features or a certain kind of hair, but in virtue of the fact that we're in possession of immaterial, immortal souls, that that was what it was to be a human being. So then in the encounter with Native Americans, um, the question is not, um, 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 can you be fully human like me, even if your skin is a different color, and even if um, you're, you're, you're different in appearance, and also in behavior, and, but that, th- th- those are two separate issues that we can address separately later on. The question was rather, did these people emerge spontaneously out of the earth or not, right? In other words, um, are they, um, are they, uh, imposter men or are they real men? And if they are real men, then they have to have descended, um, from, uh, the ancient Near East, um, uh, a handful of thousands of years ago, right? That's just the basic constraint on understanding human diversity. And there were people coming down on both sides in the 16th century, um, 
interestingly, many of the people who argued that Native Americans are Earthborn, um, as the as the the phrase was, were not as you might think apologists for for Spanish imperialism um, um, or uh, uh, anything like racists in our sense. They were rather what you might call libertine proto naturalists, and I'm thinking in particular in particular here of uh, Giordano Bruno and uh, Lucilio Vanini. Um, who were interested in kind of exploring the possibility that human beings could have natural origins. Now, obviously, too bold to come right out and say we have natural origins, but they projected this idea onto the Native Americans. What's surprising is that when we look at uh, many of the figures in the 16th century, in Europe in particular, who are venturing the idea that uh, the Native Americans are born of the earth and thus are not descended from Adam and thus are only simulacra of human beings... Uh, these people are not proposing this. People like Giordano Bruno or Lucilio Vanini, they're not venturing this idea uh, as apologists for imperialism or as hardened racists in any sense that we would understand the term, but rather uh, what they're trying to do is to kind of open up the possibility of considering a naturalistic explanation of human origins. And, you know, ultimately, it's a bit more complicated than this. But Darwin does teach us that human beings are born from the earth, right? There, there are several steps and millions of years, but, um, but, but, but naturalism does tell us we come from the earth. Um, now, uh, 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 so this is the, the spirit and the motivation behind uh, 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 this idea in the 16th century, not to uh, dehumanize these distant others, but rather to uh, uh, suggest a bold hypothesis that if they were to suggest it directly of Europeans, of themselves, would have been far too bold. Of course, uh, this, uh, this, this wasn't enough, or they were, they were too bold nonetheless, and they did get in trouble with the Inquisition, but that seems to have been the spirit of it. So the 16th century is a really interesting period, and it's necessary to start in this period because we're dealing with an entirely different anthropological model uh, than the one that would reign by the 18th century. Um, and it's one that tries to make sense out of human diversity uh, uh, in terms of the basic unity of the, of the human species uh, required by the idea that we're all the image of God insofar as we're all descended from Adam. Mm-hmm. Now the second, uh, or the chapter after this, chapter four, further pushes on this idea of the importance of Adam and descent from Adam by looking at um, ideas about uh, pre-Adamism, right? The idea that human groups were created at different moments and looks and tries to justify the existence of different groups by positioning um, the creation of human groups prior to Adam. And you talk also in this chapter um, about accounts um, that are based in uh, diffusionist models, right? Sure. 
Um, sure, sure. That was a really interesting chapter um, that's also worth probably an hour, but we're going to speed ahead um, <laughs> to mark that for listeners so that they know that's there. Um, and that's followed by a chapter that really explores the nature and the consequences of something um, that you've briefly mentioned um, just in your prior comments. And that is the idea of um, a kind of degeneration um, that produced mm-hmm. diversity, um, either because of particularities of diet and environment or degenerate morals and practices, or interestingly, hybridism. And you talk specifically in this chapter, chapter five, um, and again, I'm marking this for listeners, about um, the the interest and the importance of the place of apes in Mm -hmm. um, these reflections on degeneration. So it's a really, really interesting chapter that um, also links up ultimately physical anthropology and racism in the modern sense in terms of kind of common origins. Sure. Now, this brings us to um, a chapter that marks a real transformation. And this is a chapter, chapter six, um, that looks at the transformation from discourses about lineage to discourses that are grounded in ideas of biogeography. Now, this chapter looks closely at the contribution of French physician and traveler, Francois Bernier, to the history of racial thinking. Now, for listeners who don't necessarily um, know who he is, I mean, you you tell us here that he's often credited as um, the key innovator of the modern race concept. But for listeners who aren't familiar with him, what do we need to understand about him to understand why he's important? And specifically, um, can you talk about the importance of the fact that he actually traveled, which seems um, key here? Sure, sure. Uh, Bernier is a fascinating fascinating character. I wouldn't say he's credited uh, with developing the modern race concept so much as he is uh, 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 regretted or uh, condemned for having done so. Uh, In 1684, he publishes a short uh, article in uh, the Journal des Savants, which was the primary learned journal in France in the 17th century, called uh, La Nouvelle Division de la Terre, so the, the, the new division of the earth, in which he says, uh, uh, men have hitherto uh, divided up uh, uh, human beings according to nation, uh, but I uh, uh, propose to do it according to uh, four or five more basic, and then uses is so species or races, um, and that's significant for reasons. Um, I'd like to explore uh, if we have time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the first time uh, that uh, the first significant time, there are a few other earlier occurrences in which the, the concept of race is appropriated for talking about human diversity. Um, where is it appropriated from? Well, it's appropriated from uh, uh, the domestic breeding of animals, right? And of course, in French, Ita- in Italian, a number of languages, unlike English, the term that is still used today for breed, as in a breed of dogs or horses, is race, race, right? And um, and and this would have been the primary connotation uh, when uh, when Bernier is writing in uh, the 1680s. Um, and so so the, the the move here then is to say that we can do for 
human beings, uh, we can think about human beings in the, in the way that we're already familiar uh, uh, with thinking about horses and dogs and pigeons. Um, but he also effectively uh, uh, eliminates uh, the element of uh, genealogy from the concept of race and replaces it with what I call the biogeographical model. That is to say, Bernier is not particularly interested in why Europeans have the the, the, the physiological features they do and why sub-Saharan Africans have the, the ones they do. He just wants to typologize and classify according to region. And so what this effectively does, as I, as I argue, perhaps somewhat schematically, is that it makes uh, races into species. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, previously, race had meant for animals, not just the, 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 the visible traits, but rather the line of descent. And for many other thinkers in Europe, uh, uh, well after Bernier, race would mean principally uh, uh, the people who share the same line of descent. So it's common to hear about uh, the race of the House of Brunswick or uh, the race of the Guelph or something like this, that is to say, a noble lineage, right? That's what was meant by race in the first instance. And it's interesting to note here that some of the disputed etymologies of the term race trace it back maybe to a kind of back formation from the, from the Latin generatio, maybe uh, to an Arabic verbal root meaning to flow, which again gives you the idea of, you know, uh, something that moves between generations, whereas Bernier effectively says, I don't care about that. Uh, when I'm talking about race, I'm talking about particular physical traits, wherever they come from, as they correlate with regions. What do I mean when I say that he effectively in so doing uh, reduces race to species? Well, think about the term species. What does it mean? Uh, its root is spec, which is to say the inspectable part of um of a given thing, and this is why it's connected semantically with uh, theories of, for example, uh, 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 intentional species that some philosophers thought were uh, the 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 uh, the little uh, kind of physical traces of a thing that strike your eye and that are responsible for your seeing that thing. So, species as part of a theory of vision, species always had to do with um, with the outer surface of things, and this is effectively what Bernier does to uh, to to deploy the concept of race to talk about the outer surfaces of things rather than their lineages. Um, now Bernier is interesting. He is a disciple of the materialist philosopher Pierre Gassendi, um, and he was also a physician uh, in the court of the great. Mogul uh, in uh, the Mogul Empire, um, which covered uh, a good portion of northern India and what is today Pakistan and Iran. And, uh, 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 he was what we would also think of as an Orientalist. He claims to have um, translated Descartes and Gassendi into Persian himself, which was the late 
lingua franca of the Mughal Empire. Uh, 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 and he was very involved in what you could call interfaith dialogues on the nature of the soul and immortality and uh, 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 questions like that between uh, 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 Muslims, Hindus, and Christians, or at least not Christians, I should say, Muslims, Hindus, and uh, atheists of Christian descent, uh, such as himself. Um, And this is hard to uh, correlate squarely with his later theory of race, which he develops decades after returning home, let's say years after returning home. Um, But plainly, it's uh, the beginning of his interest in reflecting on the nature of human diversity, right? Uh, And um, 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 it's interesting to note that, however, systematically he starts out his article on the new division of the earth uh, by uh, page three or four. Uh, it's kind of degenerated into a sort of uh, travel adventure where he relates what he once saw at a slave market in uh, Constantinople and uh, his his pretense of uh, of giving us a. Uh, uh, a new racial theory um, it kind of falls by the wayside. <laughs> um, now, what, anyhow, he's, oh, so go ahead. Go on. No, 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 no. After you. No, no, no. Uh, I was just going to say he's a he's a fascinating character, and I think more work would have to be done on uh, precisely. Uh, uh, the ways in which uh, the, the the new division of the earth uh, of the 1680s uh, draws on his experience uh, 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 in the Mughal Empire. Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the most important differences between Leibniz's conception of race and what Bernier was doing? What do we need to know about what's what makes Leibniz's approach importantly different, and why does that matter? Well, again, what I was uh, talking about previously was uh, this confusion between Leibniz and Bernier and uh, the fact that uh, this uh, conception of race uh, that Bernier developed, uh, which kind of focused only on observable physical traits, correlated them to geographic regions and didn't inquire into lineages. This view was mistakenly attributed to Leibniz, even though Leibniz explicitly said on a few occasions, as far as I'm concerned, the only uh, uh, interesting or viable subdivisions within the human species are those based on language. And if you have two people who speak the same language, they are most likely, so he thinks, to uh, descend uh, from common origins, from a single lineage. If they happen to look uh, extremely different from one another with respect to skin color or whatever, that is a trivial matter. It doesn't uh, it doesn't signal any uh, uh, fundamental divide uh, for Leibniz. And in this respect, I identify, and I'm not the first scholar to do so, but I identify Leibniz as a sort of proto 
Herderian, um, that is someone who associates uh, human diversity first and foremost with uh, cultural differences and um, identifies cultures in turn, in turn as uh, rather discrete, uh, fixed, uh, so to speak, uh, atomic um, units uh, to which people belong and which do not over uh, 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 do not overlap with other such units uh, so this is a sort of communitarianism then but it's quite significant for understanding Leibniz's conception of uh, 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 human diversity um, because it comes up again and again for example in his response to John Locke in his new essays concerning human understanding of 1704, uh, where Locke is preoccupied with this question of boundary uh, 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 beings that somewhat partake of the human species, but not uh, entirely. And on this occasion, now they're talking about uh, 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 purported uh, human primate uh, hybrids or uh, creatures that um, partake somewhat of the human and somewhat of the ape, but on this occasion, Leibniz also says a number of interesting things to the effect that the outer morphology of a creature uh, cannot matter in determining uh, 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 its belonging to the human species. And indeed, as we see within cultural linguistic groups, uh, there can be tremendous diversity of appearance. But this is what matters, Leibniz wants to say, and he gives some rigorous, in other texts from around the same period, he gives some rigorous examples of, for example, he's very, he's very uh, 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 advanced uh, as being one of the first thinkers to identify the commonalities between Finnish, Hungarian, and a number of languages that would have been considered Asiatic at the time. And he said, do Finns look anything like Asians? No, but uh, uh, there's a, a clear linguistic affinity, and this is what matters most of all. So he's constantly concerned to root diversity in something that, as he sees it, gets behind uh, superficial physical differences, uh, and that that in turn focuses on something that has to do with, uh, let's say, rationality, including the collective rationality of a linguistic community. Great. And one of the really interesting things um, for me as a historian that comes up in this chapter really touches on something that you've already mentioned, on this concern with unity, with singularity. Sure. You say that for Leibniz, history was the science of singular things. Yes. Uh, uh I love that. I just just love that. Um, Yes, do you want to yes, talk a little it, bit about that? Yeah. Sure. It's it's very interesting. And I mean, it's part of a broader project that I published on this elsewhere of showing a different side of, side of Leibniz, who is uh, taken to be a kind of extreme rationalist who would have no use for the sort of truths that are grounded uh, in nothing more than the, the, the contingencies of history. But even during his lifetime, he's complaining about this. He's writing letters to his friends saying, uh, people criticize me when I... 
uh, uh, leave behind the eternal truths of mathematics to focus on res singulares, on the singular things of history. Now, this term comes up in connection with a uh, uh, a draft of a division of the sciences that he sends to uh, one of Peter the Great's advisors in anticipation of the establishment of the St. Petersburg Academy of Sciences, um, in which he says we have a uh, 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 general uh, uh, or generic field called history that divides into the natural and the civil, um, and history is understood in this connection not as something that necessarily focuses on the past, but rather as I think the term natural history still suggests, even though we almost never use that term today, um, that focuses rather on um, on individual things or on singular things. Um, and I think Part of Leibniz's later life project, which comes out most clearly, I think, in his, uh, let's say, designs for scientific, uh, collective scientific research um, 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 in Russia, um, some of which he actually started at a distance, but much of which wouldn't be carried out until after his death, was a sort of attempt to understand uh, 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 the way in which uh, observation of vast quantities of singular things can uh, give you an insight into the natural order. And this uh, is something that is uh, applied in fields as various as the, the measurement of magnetic variation, but also uh, physical anthropology and the study of human diversity. And what I argue is that um, that what you see here is a very concrete application in, in Leibniz of um, the metaphysical principle that he has uh, kind of underlying everything he does of um, uh, uh, unity and diversity, or as he um, as he as he puts it elsewhere. Uh, 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 multiplicity com uh, compensated by identity, right? That's a metaphysical principle, and it runs throughout these concrete projects, including the study of human diversity. Great. Thank you, Justin. So as we move to the next chapter, we move to a study of the work of Anton Wilhelm Amel. He was the first African philosopher, or he's been called the first African philosopher in modern history. So this chapter is really interesting for many reasons, um, part of which revolve around the appreciation of um, and understanding of Amel's work and its significance for the larger story that you're telling. But part of it is also um, interesting, at least for me, because it touches on some really interesting Interesting concepts that interfinger with with what's going on here um, and have some kind of uh, broader um, interest and broader relevance. So the idea of, for example, what is an African philosophy? Like, what does it mm -hmm. mean to talk about an African philosophy as an object, right? Coming from sure. um, Asian studies, um, we have these kinds of conversations a lot, actually. Um, so so we'll get to that um, hopefully in a moment. But first, sure. let's start at the beginning. Um, Amo was active in Germany in the period between Leibniz and Kant. And you talk about... Um, kind of the importance of his ideas here for how we understand um, these larger conceptions of race and, and uh, its transformations. So you say in the chapter that his identity as an African in Europe shaped both his philosophy and its reception. 
So I'm going to hit the ball back to you on this one. Can you tell us, um, for you, what's most important for us to understand about Amo's work in terms of the larger points that you're making in the chapter, and how and why did his identity as an African um, shape uh, his work and its reception so much? Oh, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, There's a lot to say about Amo and the problems of studying Amo. One is that he leaves only very, very uh, uh, slight traces in the historical record, uh, and one has to uh, use a lot of imagination to reconstruct uh, the person and to figure out why he wrote what he wrote. Um, 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 And... Uh, uh, it's a very different project than, say, studying Leibniz, where uh, he's uh, uh, about as exposed as anyone in the late 17th or the 18th centuries could be. Uh, now, uh, 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 this is an ongoing project as well. I'm, I'm, I'm working together with a colleague on a, on a co-translation of the, of the collected works of Amo uh, 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 from Latin into English. Uh, unfortunately, one of the works is is missing. Uh, his first work was a legal dissertation uh, uh, called De Jure, uh, De Jure Maurorum in Europa, so on the right of Moors in Europe. It's an argument against uh, 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 the, legitimacy, the legal legitimacy of, um, of slavery within Europe, which is significant because Amo seems to have been brought to Europe from uh, Guinea um, or from an area that's today Ghana um, as a slave or intended uh, to work as an enslaved house servant. That's not entirely sure, uh, certain he might have been brought with the intention of um, training him um, um, for missionary work back in, uh, back in West Africa later. In any case, uh, uh, it's very uncertain. What we do know is that he was brought to Europe um, via Amsterdam and eventually to um, uh, to Wolfenbüttel in Germany. Uh, he was brought around the age of three, um, and uh, he was sent to university uh, uh, sixteen or seventeen years after that. Uh, and um, as far as we can tell. Uh, he um, um, had a kind of classic uh, German university education. Now, his uh, kind of uh, reception history is interesting because he was invoked uh, by uh, Blumenbach, um, later by the, the Belgian abolitionist priest, uh, uh, the Abbe Henri Grégoire, um, in a, in a very interesting treatise called, um, uh, De la littérature des nègres of 1808, uh, uh, in which, uh, you know, the, the, the tendency in these early traces of Amo's life, uh, was to, um, invoke him as a literate uh, and successful uh, uh, African, just as an example of the possibility of, uh, of, of, of such a thing against uh, the kind of um, uh, racist orthodoxy that was taking, taking shape in the 18th century, which said that, you know, that, that, that there, no one was capable of such things. But still, these were very superficial mentions of his life work rather than um, um, rigorous uh, 
kind of analyses of what he had to contribute. And then in the 20th century, he's taken up by uh, uh, African nationalists, um, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, the, the, the first president of Ghana, and something of a, 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 a historian and synthesizer of philosophy himself, um, describes Amo as a typically African philosopher. Um, the evidence for that is, is pretty slim. Um, 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 again, he seems, he seems not to have had any memory at all of, um, of, 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 of an earlier life or any intellectual heritage from, um, from his life, uh, in Guinea. Um, um, now, he does gravitate at the University of Halle to uh, broadly the Leibnizian Wolfian uh, uh, tendency, which was a very contested space to be in in the 1730s in Halle. Wolf had been driven out some years earlier, and um, um, there was a kind of rising orthodoxy of what we refer to as pietism, which is a movement that's hard to explain, but let's just say they were, um, they were extremely conservative and um, 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 do not seem to have been particularly um, liberal-spirited towards students like Amo. Now, Amo was not the most, the most uh, unconventional student uh, uh, at the University of Halle. Probably more problematic were the few uh, Jewish students and evidently also a few Muslim students who were enrolled there contemporaneously in the 1730s. Um, 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 Amo is listed in certain uh, 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 registers uh, enrollment registers from that period as a moor alongside people who appear to be Muslims and also are registered as moors, even though they're probably from the Ottoman Empire, which shows kind of the the the, the fluidity of these of these of these categories. Um, but it seems, from the scant evidence that we can pull out, it seems that 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 Amo gravitated towards a sort of broadly Leibnizian uh, philosophical anthropology um, that um, identifies the human person entirely with non-bodily traits. And again, this is very speculative, but this could be, um, 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 this could have something to do with his own particular biography and, uh, and, and social identity. Great. And you talk about um, the uh, importance of his ideas about the relationship between mind and body, right? And this kind of touches on something that you've just alluded to, at least. Um, right. You talk about this in the chapter, and I won't um, ask you to talk too much about this now, um, just so that I don't keep you for another three hours, but we could, yeah. right? We could, because it's so interesting. Right. Um, we, you talk about this in terms of an idea of the impassivity of the human mind. The idea, right. right. Right, that the mind, the mind itself is entirely incapable of sensation, which right. suggests right. the capacity of the body alone. And so I mentioned this um, so that listeners who are particularly interested in the history of ideas of mind and body and their relationships or lack of relationships or um, basically the history of thinking with notions of mind and body. Um, there's a lot in Chapter 8 that's really fascinating that um, coalesces around these themes that listeners might want to check out and read in more detail. 
So after this, there's a chapter on race and its discontents in the Enlightenment. Now, we we won't have too much time to talk about this, but I just want to highlight maybe um, a a point or two and just ask you to talk about that as we move to our conclusion. Now, this chapter looks at some of the most important developments of the concept of race in 18th century Germany. And it, it identifies an inconsistency between what the chapter calls the desire to make taxonomic distinctions and a Mm -hmm. hesitance to posit any real ontological divisions within the human species. Right, right, right. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. um, the chapter talks about the significance of skin color. It talks about Kant's work um, and it argues for Herder as an important link between the early modern universalism that Leibniz was representing and a 19th century cultural anthropology. So in order to kind of maybe move us toward our conclusion, can you talk about um, what you think is most important about Herder's work um, in in making these links and perhaps um, bringing us into the future beyond the scope of the 18th century of this book? Now, in the in the final chapter, there's a, a lot of discussion of a number of different figures, and it and it all goes very fast. It's a sort of rapid um, survey of of an important period, and it's not as kind of uh, uh, fine grained uh, as some of the earlier studies. Um, but I, I think this kind of um, 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 rapid uh, movement from uh, uh, Kant to Blumenbach to Herder in particular uh, is uh, 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 useful for giving a sense of uh, the variety and the, 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 the real stakes of these debates in uh, the later 18th century, uh, at least in Germany. And Germany's a special case because it doesn't have a, a, a nearly as um, great uh, colonial presence as France and England and Holland and Spain uh, 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 do. Um, And so you see Blumenbach, for example, talking about how uh, uh, he's heard that um, in uh, colonial uh, Spanish America, they have all these strange terms like uh, octoroon um, um, to describe, you know, fine-grained distinctions between uh, the contributions of uh, European and African blood to a person. And he says clearly this couldn't be of interest uh, uh, to anyone here in Germany, um, but it might have a kind of local salience. And this is in general a, a, a characteristic of um, of 18th century German racial theory. And it's actually kind of surprising to see this, uh, that even the people we pick out as the, as the kind of thoroughgoing racial realists, Kant is a, is a very good example of this, um, in the end are uh, 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 perfectly prepared to admit that divisions of the human species based on race are, as Kant says, artificial. Um, 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 it's not uh, picking out something that's not there at all. It's not, it's not a hallucination. Uh, again, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, about this kind of you know, middle ground between uh, uh, hallucination or making things up on the one hand and, um, and picking out something that has you know, uh, 
uh, kind of utter ontological robustness on the other. Race, for someone like Kant, is somewhere in the middle. Uh, we're not hallucinating it, and yet if we divide up the human species based on it, uh, uh, we are uh, uh, introducing an artifice uh, that is of no interest to nature itself, right? Um, and then, as I, I, as I just mentioned with reference to Amo, uh, Blumenbach, even though he is in some sense the founder of physical anthropology, or to put that more crudely, the founder of uh, racial science, or in other words, scientific racism, what is, what is interesting is that nonetheless, um, he is, um, um, you know, in what he himself wrote about Amo, for example, um, very committed uh, at the kind of uh, 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 argumentative level level to uh, uh, racial equality. Um, and one is, in fact, hard-pressed to find anyone in the Enlightenment um, who is saying something to the effect that there are real differences between Europeans and Africans, and Africans are truly, fixedly, permanently, uh, naturally inferior or something like that. Um, Voltaire says this, um, but as far as one can tell, he's just saying this to be kind of, you know, to be a jerk. I mean, to be himself, right? Um, 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 he's not, uh, he's not saying something he's, he's deeply committed to. He's just trying to show how, um, how, how scandalous he can be, right? Um, so then this is the real surprise that, 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 that racism, um, really hardens and, and, and worsens over the course of the 18th century, but it did so without out uh, the assistance of theorists who were giving robustly realistic accounts of racial difference. It was enough to introduce and familiarize people with the distinctions uh, 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 Negro, white, um, and so on. Um, even if one, and, you know, as Blumenbach and Kant and others were doing, even if simultaneously one was saying, but of course these are only artificial divisions. So that's, that's an interesting kind of paradox um, um, it's not, it's certainly not to excuse these people. It's more to, um, uh, 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 uh kind of, uh, motivate the question, uh, uh, of the relationship between, uh, uh, theorizing or, you know, proposing positive theories on the one hand, uh, and widely held popular beliefs on the other hand about race, right? Um, now, Hara is, is, is very special in all of this because he's the one who makes this uh, kind of interesting move uh, that I think we can think about it in kind of structuralist terms. Uh, as, I, as I previously mentioned, uh, there was this fascination in the 18th century with uh, skin color. In the 1740s, you have all sorts of crazy treatises on the causes of black skin uh, uh, that use, you know, uh, this kind of wildly uh, technical language of Newtonian optics and so on. Um, Blumenbach is... Uh, 
kind of gets us away from that with his interest in skeletometry and the idea that that skin color is superficial. The only thing that's fixed and stable and measurable about human diversity is the skeleton or, you know, uh, more, more specifically, the, 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 the cranium. Um, but then, uh, you know, people are still talking about skin color nonetheless. And Herder makes this special structuralist move where he says, wait, why is uh, why is black skin the so to speak, I'm putting words in his mouth here, the marked category, right? Uh, why aren't people asking um, um, what the causes of white skin are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, a very exceptional position to take uh, 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 in the era. Um, and it, you know, it deviates from the, the widely held view that um, human beings might all uh, belong to the same basic unity. They might all descend from the same uh, parents. But uh, we have to suppose that the European is the standard of the species from which other, uh, 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 other peoples have degenerated. Herder um, um, denies this, um, says that, you know, there is um, nothing objectively worse about being in Africa, in or let's say uh, in a relationless way. There's nothing. There's nothing truly worse about being an African in Africa than about being a, a, a German in Germany. Um, this uh, this is this is bold, but it's uh, also important to point out that it's some. It's rather far from multiculturalism, right? Uh, uh, Herder thinks there's a place for everyone in the world, and the place for Africans is in Africa. Africa, the place where Germans is in Germany, and so you can see how uh, this uh, this 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 position that's very anti-racist within the context of the 18th century, nonetheless, um, um, also has within it the seeds of um, of a nationalism that would soon turn ugly. <laughs> So, Justin, um, thank you so much uh, for talking with me about the book. There's so much fascinating stuff that you've already talked about, and there's a ton of material that we haven't had a chance to talk about, right? It's yeah. a super rich book. Um, given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Hmm. Um, well, I think, again, getting back to something I said yesterday, I, I do try to engage with uh, contemporary philosophical debates about race, uh, and I do so very much in my own way, uh, I think there's a lot of interesting discussion going on in, uh, in Anglo-American philosophy uh, of race right now. Um, 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 but the kind of extra philosophical material that uh, that my colleagues are drawing on is pretty much limited to the social sciences and to uh, psychology particularly um, um, experimental psychology the study of implicit bias uh, things like this and this is all very interesting and rich uh, but the, the 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 argument I try to make explicitly and then to show, uh, uh, in the course of the study is that we don't have to stop there. Um, we can also uh, turn to turn to history um, and um, and deepen our understanding of how it is that t- people came to talk and think the way they do about human diversity today 
by 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 looking at the question at the question with the kind of long durée uh, 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 historical approach. And I I, I firmly believe uh, that um, that this is a an edifying exercise, not just for the writer but for the reader. Uh, to the extent that it um, it 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 exposes the the contingency of uh, categories that uh, that 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 too easily uh, feel natural and 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 permanent and fixed to us, um, and that's I think the 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 the, the benefit of, of of historical ontology. So now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you working on now? What are you currently inspired by in terms of your work? Well, I, I I have a major project that I'm supposed to finish by next year, but I think it will probably be more like 2018, 2019. Um, it's called A Global History of Philosophy to 1750. Um, and this is uh, uh, something of a continuation of, of some of the same interests that are on display in, in, in the book we've discussed. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in um, what philosophy is, um, whether in particular we can think of the concept as a proper noun, uh, as anything that descends from a certain style of reasoning and dialoguing that emerged in ancient Greece. And on such a conception, there would be no such thing as, for example, Chinese or Indian philosophy, let alone Amazonian or uh, uh, Oceanic philosophy. Um, um, or is philosophy rather uh, 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 a universal human disposition that manifests itself uh, 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 in uh, widely different ways um, from one cultural region to another? So it's a kind of metaphilosophical approach to the history of philosophy or perhaps a kind of uh, anthropology of philosophy, a comparative uh, anthropology of philosophy, but one that I think is extremely necessary um, given... Uh, current debates about the need for greater diversity in philosophy. What do we mean when uh, we uh, 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 propose to diversify philosophy by, among other things, diversifying the canon? And how far can we go uh, in doing this? Now, I'm extremely um, uh, 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 extreme about this. I'm, I'm convinced that there most certainly is is Native American philosophy and New Guinean philosophy and everything. Um, But up until now, no philosopher has explicitly engaged with this question um, in a kind of comprehensive or systematic way, even though almost all philosophers currently working are talking all the time about diversity. So um, I'm trying to... I'm trying to raise the level of seriousness of the of this of this topic of conversation, if I can, in this book. Well, best of luck with that. Um, thank you. Email me when that's done, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, one too. Right. It sounds that's amazing. Right. Um, thank you so good. much. Thank you, yeah, so much, Justin. You. It really has been a pleasure, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.